I'm Andrew Tarvin, and I beat the often path by creating my own job title, starting my own company, and teaching people how to have more fun at their work, because I believe work isn't just a thing you do for work, but should also be a little bit of fun, too. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. Andrew Tarvin is a seasoned public speaker and author with a TED Talk called The Skill of Humor that's garnered over 11 million views as of this taping. He's the author of three best-selling books on humor, and he's delivered over 500 talks around the world on the subject of humor to some of the largest companies and corporations in the world. So why do I love his story? It's because he exemplifies someone who was on the often path and then took a sharp detour towards a vastly different, much more creative life. He was in the heart of the beast, folks, as an IT project manager at Procter & Gamble. He worked hard to bring humor into his corporate environment at the time, but it wasn't long before he set his sights on defining an entirely new career path for him as a humorist, keynote speaker, author, and more. Now, he's perfectly bridged that gap between humor and the stuffiness of traditional business, and that's why I'm so captivated by his story. So here's Andrew Tarvin. Well, welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Today, we're going to talk about humor, something <laughs> that is scientifically defined as making people laugh. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you, you joke, but I, I have seen humor presentations like that, where it's kind of like, where people are like, that's what people say about my programs. Like, it was great that you actually made us laugh. And it's like, how bad is it if it's a, if it's a humor presentation and you don't use any of the thing you're talking about the benefits of. It's like a courtesy laugh that you get. They're like, oh man, finally. But anyway, <laughs> let's start for real. Okay. So humor, something very important, something you've been, you've made it your life. So tell everybody what's, what's the transition, your career arc. How did you mm -hmm. end up where you are and what do you do? Uh, well, I, I started very much on the often path. Um, so I started with um, a degree in computer science and engineering from The Ohio State University. The one and, and only. And uh, the one and only. Uh, I have to say that the, otherwise they take away my degree. It's right. crazy. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so I started that and I started working at Procter & Gamble as an IT project manager after I graduated. And that was very in line with my personality assessments from like high school and college, because uh, if you know your personality assessments, I'm a type A blue square conscientious INTJ with the sign of Aquarius, Whoa! which means that I am a stubborn, ambitious introvert who likes long walks on the beach uh, by great. myself. All we have in common is the N. That's it. Yeah, ENFP that's it. All, all of those things. It's <laughs> just the, the um, But like, intuitive. if you look, if you look at INTJs, yeah. if if you're in the Star Wars universe, I think that makes you Darth Vader. Okay. It makes you kind of an evil mastermind or a nerd or like an engineering nerd. I think. And so I went engineering nerd, not evil mastermind kind of approach on INTJ. And yeah, so it started at PNG, kind of working this this project management role, and kind of thought that was it. I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is which is PNG's global headquarters. So growing up, I knew if you got a job at PNG, you were kind of set for life with the you know the the cost of living in Cincinnati being relatively low, and the the compensation and the uh, benefits at PNG being very very good. And it was like, okay, this is what I'm going to work. You know, my my career there. And uh, where the, the path started to get a little bit shaky, to extend this metaphor a little bit more, is I started right. doing improv and stand-up in college. Okay. This was kind of that first, like, I heard, a, I heard an interesting noise off the beaten path that was improv and stand-up. And started doing that and discovered that I really enjoyed it. I was not good at it, mm -hmm. but really enjoyed it. And as I started doing improv and stand-up, saw that it was really helping me to do my work better at PNG. Sure. It was helping me like with communications and meetings and sending emails that people actually listen to and all this. And, uh, you know, happy to dive deeper into it, but ultimately discovered that uh, improv and humor was helping me. So I wanted to explore that intersection of humor in the workplace, improv and business, happiness and productivity a little bit more. Proclaimed myself the corporate humorist of PNG, started blogging about it, fell in love with that work, started my own company. And now I am, as far as I know, the world's first humor engineer. Uh, which is I solve problems using things like humor and improv. 
That's, I mean, your story couldn't be more relevant to somebody like me because this is exactly the struggle that I've had and I've talked about for years and years. Similar story for me, did improv for six years, high school and college. You get addicted to that feeling, you get a laugh, and it's just the greatest feeling in the entire world. Um, but then you end up with this tension, as so many of us do, when you get into the corporate world or the serious world. You have to be serious all the time. If you're in business, you've got to be serious all the time. There's no place for jokes. So there's this tension there. Um, I'm very curious how you navigated this. So eventually you left the company. What motivated you to do that? Well, I mean, I actually really enjoyed my job at PNG, okay. and and they were open to the humor that I use. So I, my first week on the job, my manager told me that it's better to beg for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission at PNG because they're all about kind of leadership development. It's a promote from within company, and so they have to be good at leadership development because their future CEO is someone who's going kind of through the ranks, and so they have to be like. Oh, better be good at you know developing our people. Um, and so they he told me this, and I, I will admit, being an engineer, I was kind of like, I wonder if he actually means that, right? Is that just a thing that you say? It's it sounds nice, better to beg for forgiveness than ask for permission. But like if I test him, does it hold up? So I decided to test him. And that's where I started to bring in some of the humor and the improv. I started to add jokes to the ends of my emails. I started to teach my team members improv exercises. And I did proclaim myself the corporate humorist to PNG. And I kind of thought I would get in trouble for that. I thought that was the one thing that I had to beg for forgiveness for that, mm -hmm. you know, someone from HR or legal would come to me and be like, what are you doing? You can't just create your own job title. Uh, right. And you're like, no, that's not what we hired you to do, but no one ever did. People just started referring to me as a corporate humorist. And so I think to your point, we have this perception that, being a professional means that we have to be bland, that we have to be a robot, that we have to be sterile or robotic. And I realized for myself that I could start to incorporate a little bit of humor and it, it made my work more fun. And I was more willing to show up to work and people were more willing to come to my meetings and they're more likely to respond to my emails. And I remember uh, I would send these jokes at the ends of my status reports and I got an email back on like, I would send them out on Monday. And I remember coming in on a Tuesday and I had like a bunch of email replies to one email that I had sent out. And I was like, oh no, what did, did I like say something offensive? Was I wrong about the project status? Did like, did they not like the joke? What was going on? And I had forgotten to include a joke. And so all of the email responses were, where was the joke? I thought you normally included a uh, pun. Are you still doing the puns? What happened to it? <laughs> I, that's why I read these emails. Like, and so it told me like, oh no, this, this joke, this humor that I was adding was setting a certain expectation, but also getting people, I don't know if they actually read the full email, but they at least opened the email and scrolled to the bottom, which is much more you can say than uh, for, the, for the, uh, like a lot of status reports that people just completely like delete and click. And so all of that, discovering that and then blogging about it internally, the reason why I left was because I was also one of those people that initially thought I couldn't use humor. And I was like, no, there is a benefit to it. Someone needs to tell other people that they can use humor, partially because it's good for them and partially because I was tired of sitting in boring meetings. I was like, someone needs to teach that person how to make this more engaging so I'm not bored to death while they're talking. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, oh, well, I could be that someone to teach them that. And yep. that started the journey of like, okay, let me let me train on this idea of humor in the workplace. And now it's time for a segment we like to call Ask the Streets. Okay, we're out here on the streets of nature. We're gonna ask the question, what is the role of humor in business? Is there a connection there, yes or no? Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, I'd say that, I mean, there's a, well, what is, humor is one of those essential ways that we, we build connection, right? Between people and, and business is based on nothing if not relationships, right? So humor is one of those ways that we bridge quickly. If we both think the same thing is funny, we, we establish a bond, but obviously there's a there's a ceiling on that where it's like, if you, you don't want to come off as uh, frivolous or silly, right? I mean, like there's, there's a point where too much humor would, would undermine your credibility. It's just a delicate uh, sort of balance there that you'd have to you'd have to strike. But I think absolutely there's a there's a role for it. And it, um, I mean, it quickly like nothing quickly establishes a, a rapport or a connection than a shared laugh, right? I mean that's that's that can be the 
the, the solid footing for a whole relationship to, to grow. Right? Sounds good. All right. Back to the show. You heard it here. Yeah, I love that. I think humor would be good for this uh, podcast, too, because, you know, on the Forbes annual most boring content list, my podcast loses each year to a uh, listening to paint dry. Yeah. It's always neck and neck, but I uh-huh. lose out. They just get me every year. Exactly. Um, <laughs> well, it's because they it's because they always pick great color of paint it's to great dry, paint. right? It's like today, today it's, it's yeah, it's an uh, aqua color that's drying on the wall. Exactly. You can hear it. And sometimes it makes sounds, but so you're doing this. That's great. So you, yeah, I completely agree with everything you said. It's obviously something that I feel very deeply, but I've noticed that a lot of people don't feel or they don't think about it. Maybe they all appreciate humor in some way, but they don't consciously go after it. Um, at what point did you begin to get the idea that maybe you have a new business or something else that would allow you to quit your job? Yeah, it, it's one, it, it's, it, it was an evolution. And I will say, I, I do not have the sexy story of the say, like, you know, I was in a meeting at PNG and someone said something ridiculous. So I flipped over the table, stormed out and it's like, I'm going to start a humor career. Uh, it was much longer than that. It started first, like I said, as the as proclaimed corporate humorist, I would blog internally about it. And then I would go to my manager and was like, hey, we've got an offsite coming up. Can I can I lead icebreakers in the morning so that we can build some relationships? And then I just did some applied improv exercises for those icebreakers. And that went well. People enjoyed it. So then I was like, hey, for our next offsite, can I do a 60-minute communications workshop on improv? Ooh. And like, hey, yeah, the, the the icebreaker thing went well. We need, you know, content to fill anyway. So that sounds pretty good. We can do that. And then that manager left and he was like, hey, can you come and do that communication workshop that you did for us for this other, you know, division within PNG? And I was blogging about it and people were reacting to the blog. And and because it was working internally at PNG, I was like, oh, I I bet if people at PNG like this, a company of 100,000 people, well, there's a planet of 7 billion people that there's probably other companies or other professionals that might also resonate with this content. And that's where Humor That Works was sprang from, was like, okay, let me take all the content that I've written internally, make it accessible externally, and see if I can start to build and, and speak from there. And, and that, from the point of that happening, it was basically two and a half years later that I decided to leave because I didn't know if this was going to be a successful business. I didn't know if this was actually, I didn't know at the time that there was entire speaking professional careers where people would like, you know, travel from city to city. I didn't know anything about you can do an online course or do this training or other things. It was just, this is the initial idea. Let me see. And and I feel pretty fortunate because I accidentally did a couple of things that were really beneficial to the point that after two and a half years, when I left, it didn't feel like a very big risk at all. It felt like kind of a natural progression. And you started by writing that book, your first of three books. You wrote a book two and a half years before you ultimately transitioned into it as a career? No. So the book was, the book came when I left PNG. Okay. I thought about it. But what, what came, what was helpful in that leaving, the reason why I didn't feel like it was too big of a risk was there was a couple of things that I did. And like I said, I didn't necessarily intentionally do them, but they very well helped. On the very tactical side, what I did was I created a spreadsheet because I'm a project manager. I love spreadsheets. I created a spreadsheet called Operation Leave Corporate America. Um, and uh, in it was basically a list of things that I needed to do before I would feel comfortable leaving. Right. So PNG and branding, they talk about this idea of reasons to believe RTBs. We love our acronyms at PNG. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to create what are my RTBs that I could be successful if I leave? And it's like, oh, if I have a website up, that's a good thing to have before I leave. And oh, I should probably do X number of events externally to make sure that I actually enjoy them and that I like it. Oh, I'll take a week of vacation to see can I actually be disciplined to do my own work when no one is looking over my shoulder? Because that's a benefit of working for someone else is you have accountability. Whereas if you're an entrepreneur, no one is forcing you to schedule a podcast. No one's forcing you to get it, you know, aired or whatever. Nope. Um, Make X number of dollars from it. Have some pictures of me, uh, you know, speaking. Have a little bit of a client list. Have a little bit of money saved up. So if I Feral miserably. I'm not going to starve to death and I can find a new job, et cetera. So that was the very tactical thing that I did do these things. And then from a, a strategy or a perspective shifting thing, I thought of three kind of primary questions that I had already used a little bit to make some other decisions. And the three questions were first of all, what's the worst that could happen if I were to leave? 
Uh, and the worst that could happen, the answer is always death. Right, like, death, starvation. Regardless of what it is. Yep. Yeah, death, starvation. <laughs> was global pandemic on that list? <laughs> yeah, a pandemic was not. I wasn't even thinking about pandemic. A pandemic could happen, and you could go from uh, you know traveling all around the the country all the time to uh, not traveling anywhere. Um, so that was not on the list. <laughs> I'm going to travel the world. Okay, go on. <laughs> Via this little box that we have. Right? <laughs> That's so, right. This luckily, is it. We're traveling now, you and I. Exactly. Show me. Where are you based, Ross? I'm uh, near Los Angeles. Ah, right. So yeah, I get to see. I get to see this. I get to see the light in a, a screen from Los Angeles, right? And, like, and so, where like, are you? Uh, I'm in Panama right now. So my wife and I, we split time between New York City and Panama City, Panama. So well, that's this, is cool. a, this is the advantage of a virtual. I get to do this from, what? this is the sunshine of Panama right outside. Panama City, Panama. And here I saw a clip of you on Good Morning San Diego. That's <laughs> so right. I'm all that? over the place. He's all over the world. <laughs> All over the place. All right, we'll definitely um, circle back to Panama. But yeah, what are the other reasons yeah. to believe? And so, yeah, so that's the first question is, is what's the worst that could happen? Yeah. And the answer is death. Horrible. But in my case, it was I would have to get another corporate job. And yes. I figured being a computer science engineer with a slight social skill because of improv and stand-up and having, having P&G on the resume, it's like, okay, I could get another corporate job if I needed to. Um, it may not be as good as a job at PNG, but I would get something I would not starve to death. The second question that I'd ask myself is, um, what would I regret more not doing? Because I had recently read like there's when they talk about end of life surveys, when they talk to people who are on their deathbed, et cetera, their regrets are almost entirely things that they didn't do, not things that they did do. So I tried to think of what's that flip of what's, you know, what would I regret not doing? And it's like, I would regret not trying this. I would regret not seeing, can I strike out on my own? Can I see if humor can be this thing that I can build a business around or not? And then the third question that I asked was what makes for the cooler story? Because someone early on, I think in college, had told me, you know, if someone wrote a book about your life, would you care to read it? And so it's like, okay, what makes for is it is it a better story that I stay at PNG in Cincinnati where I grew up and spent my entire childhood and went to Columbus, Ohio, so like never have lived outside of the state, or is it better to move to New York City for a little bit? Is it better to live, uh, you know, leave and and try this thing out? So those three were the big perspective shift. That plus the spreadsheet of things proving to myself that I could do it gave me the confidence to say, this is enough for me to try it for a year. I had made some savings. And if I lived off of dollar pizza, uh, you know, in New York City or whatever, I could probably make it, you know, for a year, six months at least. And then I could look for another job. Let me go out and try. And that was July of 2012. And, you know, I haven't, um, haven't looked back you haven't since. Looked for another... You know, it's, it's crazy. You and I are very clearly cut from the same cloth. Your reasons, that is shockingly similar to the way that me and my wife have always talked about things. Also, mm -hmm. I mean, specifically what you said I, too, was greatly influenced by those regrets of the dying, the top five, mm -hmm. top ten regrets of the dying. Uh, and the motto of my wife and I has always been, what would be the best story? Literally. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> I mean, this is crazy. Man. And you're like, it's okay, I still want to make money. So it has to be somehow yeah. involved in corporate. I, I, I have expensive taste, but being funny is important to me um, because not being funny feels horrible. I guess you probably feel that same way. If you're dry or if you do something serious, does it feel very unsatisfying to you to do something without an element of humor in it? it I mean, it's, it's a way that I approach the things that I do because I will say, but what's interesting for me, though, is that I am an engineer above anything else. Hmm. Um, father, maybe now, maybe father, you know, has surpassed that and spouse is probably even with engineer, but even with how I am a spouse, I, I, I try to solve problems too often. Sometimes, like I know sometimes the thing to do is to allow another person just to vent rather than be like, well, you can yeah. fix that problem by doing X, Y, and Z. Like I still do that sometimes, but I use, I appreciate humor one, because it does make things more fun, but because I know it works because I know it is effective and I love solving problems. Like I am someone who does Sudoku and Ken Ken yeah. and all that kind of stuff for fun. Like I, growing up, I never thought of them as math problems. They were always math opportunities. <laughs> of course. Really. Like I love that kind of stuff. And so humor was always like, oh, once I learned it, because I was not the class clown or the funny kid growing up, mm -hmm. it became later that I was like, oh, of course I'm going to incorporate humor into how I do these things because it's going to help me get the results that I, that I want or the ones that I like mm. actually want to, to seek. And so I think that's the change for me because if, 
even once I discovered speaking as a thing, I realized speaking is basically stand up with a message. I get to make people laugh, but I also get to help them solve problems or to improve or to be better. And so my, my ideal, like I would rather do Ted global than like an HBO comedy special. And all that to say, like if HBO people are listening, I would love to do an HBO comedy (laughs) special. I'm not going to turn that down, but my, my path is more on the side of how am I going to do speaking and help people change their lives or improve as opposed to just a straight comedy special. Now the, the fun thing is that those worlds are colliding and more and more comedy specials are having great messages in them and more and more great content and great presentations are having more humor in them. But that to me is what I love about both is the intersection of both. Mm -hmm. Completely agree. Uh, how do you know if something is a joke? You know, sometimes I'll tell a joke and nobody will laugh. Other times I'll tell my wife that I love her and she won't stop laughing for uh, 20 minutes. What's the difference? Uh, the difference, well, so a joke is kind of, a joke to me is clearly defined as some, something with the setup and punchline. Right. Um, right. Here's a setup and then some type of expected thing. So I think there is, there's intentionality with the joke, but whether or not something is funny that is both simple and complex because the answer is, does it make someone laugh, right? And so if you say something that you think is funny and then no one else laughs, well, it wasn't funny to that audience. You might say it to a completely different audience and they might love it or vice versa where, yeah, I've had that same thing where it's like my wife will crack up all the time at some of the things that I say, even when it's not meant to be funny. Like I was having a conversation the other day with someone um, and uh, they're like, this is kind of, they had seen my TEDx talk And they're like, this kind of, I feel like I'm kind of talking to a celebrity. It's great to kind of actually chat with you about this event that we're putting on. feels a little bit like talking like a celebrity. So I told my wife that later and she just started cracking up, (laughs) you know, at the thought of me being, you a celebrity. Oh, that's just so funny. Like that she thought was hysterical. So (laughs) uh, it was funny, not necessarily a joke. Yes, I completely get it. Well, it's interesting as well. So you've written three books now, if I'm not mistaken. You've written Humor Mm -hmm. That Works, The United States of Laughter, 501 Ways to Use Humor. Um, now I'm also very, very curious. What made you decide to talk about humor rather than just using humor as a tool to talk about something else? What made you take that meta leap of, I'm going to give speeches on humor? It's a really good question. And if I were, if I were to go back and do things differently and if I wanted to build a business faster, I would not have talked about humor. I'm happy that I did now, but it took much longer to build because no one cares about humor in the workplace Mm -hmm. at a high level. Mm -hmm. It's a nice to have thing. Yeah, Mm -hmm. if we laughed a little bit more at work, that would be nice. What they care about is employee engagement or stress management or effective communication or improved leadership skills, increased productivity, right? A lot of the things that humor can help you do, they are interested in, but no one, very few people know that humor is that solution to getting there. So it's, it's been for a lot of people a nice to have. And so it took me a long time to get better at communicating the benefits to using humor, why this is so important. I think the reason why I focused on it back then was because it was so transformational for me mm-hmm. because one, I was not someone who was like, oh, there, I see who's on his anyway. I totally want to do that. Like, or I'm going to do stand up someday. Like, I was never that person. I was pushed into improv at university. My best friend wanted to start an improv comedy group. He needed people and forced me to join. And it changed my life in the sense that I started to become more confident. I started to be able to, like, it helped me to actually have small talk with people. I didn't get as nervous doing presentations. And I was more sure of myself. Or, like, when you get a laugh in a presentation, it helps you relax. So, like, all of these benefits that I felt personally. And I was like, I would not have had this if not for my friend pushing me into it. So, I think there's a ton of other people who probably are thinking the same thing that I thought of. I could never be funny or I could never do stand-up or I could never do improv. I want to be that person that also gives them that push. And I want to shortcut that process. I don't want you to have to go through 10 years of stand-up and improv in New York City and other places. I want to, can I shortcut that a little bit and help? And so that I think was a reason was because it was so helpful for me. I wanted to help other people with that same thing that I had discovered. Well, I think that's an incredibly noble pursuit personally. So I, I salute you. For, I, I'm with you. I completely agree that it's something that is sorely lacking. And I don't like that people think that business means that you have to be serious. I don't like that as a general broad statement. Um, You had said that moving to NYC was one of the most defining moments of your life. Obviously, the 
birth of your child being <laughs> trumping that, I would say. Uh, why? Why was that so big for you? Because uh, I grew up in a suburb of Cincinnati, Ohio, like I mentioned, and I and there's I think there's a statistic or something like that where like something like eighty percent of the people in Ohio live twenty miles from where they grew up. Whoa! And it's a uh, uh, hey Ohio. I absolutely had a fantastic childhood in Ohio. I enjoy going back. I enjoy eating Grater's ice cream and Skyline Chili, and you know seeing Buckeyes games. And I'm still a Bengals fan. Uh, for whatever reason, still a Reds fan. Like I still have great pride for the state of Ohio. I have a bunch of, you know, Ohio shirts from a great store called Amish, all that stuff. So I, I very much appreciate growing from there, but it's a very, you know, small segment of a very large country of an even bigger world. And so moving to New York City was the first time where I was like, oh, I don't have to do the beaten path in the sense of what it is to grow up in Ohio and work at a cor- this corporate job of PNG and and retire there and 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 live 20 miles from where I grew up and it exposed me to so many different cultures exposed me to so many like and I love the diversity I went to a very diverse high school and and you don't always see that in, in different places in Cincinnati but then you go to New York City and it's like you see all men of diversity just riding the subway train together and uh, I love seeing that. And then also I was able to do stand up and improv. I was able to take this kind of what was this side passion and build it in, into even something bigger. And what I what I appreciate about New York City is that if it's not number one in something, it's number two. Right. Like it's number one in stand up. It is number one in theater. It's number two in fashion, number two in improv number. Like, and so the people who live in New York City, it's a hard city to live in. So you're typically there for a reason. You're passionate about something. You are driven to do something. And when you're surrounded by people who are driven in multitudes of fields, then I think it creates a like, oh, I want to do that same thing. I don't, I don't have to, not that it is settling, but I have to decide for myself, this isn't thing. I don't have to do this just because it is the beaten path. Instead, I can try something else. And there's plenty of other people who are trying things as well. I feel the exact same way about Los Angeles. Different coast, mm-hmm. but same thing. I mean, it's not because it's cheap that we're in these places, right? Right. There's got to be something else, at least we tell ourselves that. Um, I am curious about the nuts and bolts. So if you make your living as a speaker, mm-hmm. how do you go about getting new clients, new gigs? Do you do outreach? Do they find you at this point? Is it word of mouth? Yeah, a lot of it is word of mouth referrals. So the the and typically, and you'll ask most speakers this, and most speakers will say the the number one kind of driver of business is referral or word of mouth. Or essentially what it is, what's the, if you take a step back from that, the number one driver is to be really, 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 really good at it. And like, so Steve Martin, fantastic book, Born Standing Up. If you have any interest in humor whatsoever, highly recommend Born Standing Up. Definitely check it out. It's a fascinating story that he talks about his kind of career and what he liked and what he learned and everything from it. But one of the things that he talks about is you have to be so good that they can't ignore you. And I think people hear that and they're like, oh, I got to be pretty good. It's like, no, you have to be so good that when people go home, they tell their spouse like, oh my God, I saw this person speak today and they said this thing or they had this funny joke or they had like, you have to leave a lasting impression. You have to be so good that people have to tell you, they have to say, oh my God, we got to bring them into our company. If I saw them at the association, we got to bring them in. And, and so that's always been my primary goal is how do I continually improve? How do I get better? How do I iterate? And that's also coming from the stand-up world, right? Is the only way to get better is to do that. Um, and that's how a lot of my business came. And then I was very fortunate to do a TEDx talk that um, after a year, like came out and it only had like 3000 views after six months, but then it slowly got bigger. And now we're at a little over 10 million. Whoa! And so it's just like, blown up since. And that was partially, I think, because I've worked really, really hard for it to really like be a thing that people talked about. And that also leads to business now as well. People are like, hey, I saw your YouTube video or I saw some of your videos online or I saw you speak at this particular place or whatever. So a lot of what we do, we're fortunate now is is inbound, is people coming in and then also just being strategic about the outbound approach or about the connections that we're building. And, And like I said, connecting it back to what is the thing that the business is trying to solve? Because humor, part of my message to people is about, you know, being happier in the workplace so that you actually, it's some, it's a place that you spend 90,000 hours of your life at work. So you should probably enjoy it. 
But the message to the business is, oh, people are going to be more effective. People are going to, you know, be better engaged or less likely to leave. Like and lead with the bottom line benefits so that we get in the door. And being able to have that translation of business speak also helps. And so we find ourselves like, who are the right people to talk with? Or who are, what are the right conversations for us to be in so that we can say, hey, you know how you're all dealing with the quote unquote great reshuffling, aka the great resignation, aka the big quit, aka buy Felicia to all these jobs? It's like, yes. well, you need humor to be more effective. So let's talk about how humor can help you improve your retention. Great. So you're really just dialing that in. That's mm -hmm. excellent. Um, yeah. How have things been? Are you doing a lot of virtual speaking? How has it been being a public speaker during a pandemic? <laughs> Uh, it is, it's yeah, a ton of virtual. So we, yeah. it, it was an interesting mix. So February, of, the last weekend of February of 2020, um, I did an in-person event in LA in Los Angeles and then went back thinking maybe the pandemic would be, Hey, this is going to be two, three weeks or whatever. And, uh, and then it was, you know, 18 plus months. I've done two in-person events since then with like social distancing and masks and things like that only recently. Um, but we did a ton of virtual I think we've done over 200 virtual programs Damn. around the world. And we intentionally in April. So one of the things that I think has been very, very helpful for me is if I don't have an opportunity, trying to create one as best I can myself. So in before the world really realized how long this was going to go on in April, we decided to do 30 days of humor to celebrate National Humor Month, which is April and so we did something every single day of April. So in order to fill that calendar, we're like, can we do a virtual comedy show? And what does virtual coaching look like? And can I do a virtual keynote? And what about a virtual writing workshop? And what about a virtual mentoring session? And what about it? Like everything virtual. And from having done that, people saw it. And we did it for free. We did it sometimes for five people. We did it like, you know, it wasn't the most, the biggest thing, but we just wanted to give one, we wanted to provide some type of levity to people in a particularly challenging time. And people then saw it and were like, hey, I saw you do that comedy, that virtual comedy show. We need some levity in our workplace. Could you do a virtual comedy show for like a happy hour for us? Or I saw you produce that thing and it went really well. Could you do this? Or I created a video and shared that with a couple of bureaus that was like, here's how I'm framing our virtual thing. It doesn't have to replace the in-person, but it's a good stop gap while we're waiting to see what's going on. And they're like, oh, this is great. Can we share it with our clients? They share it with their clients hey, can we actually have that guy come and speak? And so it was creating some of these opportunities to build. And it was interesting because it, it's, it's a weird kind of segue boomerang back to my degree of computer science and engineering. I was able to like, oh, how do I get the picture in picture slides? And how do I, what audio equipment do I need to actually sound good? And what's the right camera to set up in the framing? And do I need an A10 mini or a Elgato stream deck? Am I going to use Ecamm Live or Prezi video? Or like all this tech stuff I started to explore to, to create an engaging, interesting virtual experience so that people are like, oh, this isn't just reading slides to me. I actually enjoyed this experience. Yeah, that's that's excellent. So you mentioned bureaus. Do you work with a lot of different speaker bureaus? Is that something you do or are you mostly independent? Uh, mostly independent. I'd say probably 80% of what we do is is direct um, through Human That Works, but um, work with a few different bureaus. And the bureaus are fantastic. I've really enjoyed all my relationships kind of with bureaus and they certainly have access to audiences that I would probably not speak to otherwise. Like recently did a, uh, an event for a group that manufactures valves. And it's like, I don't know, they may, maybe they would find me on through like a Google search or something like, but probably not. So get to work with the bureau and, and build that relationship. So it's, it's wonderful to do. It's a small component of the, the business. I do know some speakers where they almost exclusively do things through bureaus, other people who don't do anything with bureaus. Um, but for me, I was told early on, like, a bureau isn't interested in you until you kind of don't need them. Uh. Until you're like, okay, you've built a, a big enough business that you're like, the time that a bureau really pays attention to you is if you take a client from them. If they've been like, oh, we normally book speakers for this group. And then someone sees, no, I saw this guy at this presentation. We're going to hire him no matter what. Then the bureau's like, maybe we should bring that person in or whatever, but you want to build that skill set and know that the bureau wants to know that you're in demand before they start to, to share you with, you know, potentially in front of other clients that they've worked with for a long time. Time to do a quick pause in the action here. Just a quick little shout out to remind you that if you like this guest, if you like this show, if you like any of these guests or any of these shows, 
Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice. Better yet, leave a nice review, rate it five stars, help other people find it, share the content, do whatever you can to bring more earballs to this podcast. I'll greatly appreciate it. That's it. Simple little plug if you enjoy the show. And now back to Andrew Tarvin. And it's interesting that, you know, from afar, it seems like you've racked up a lot of accolades. You've been on local news. You've been on, what, Forbes. You've been on TED. You've got a lot of these traditional media outlets. How Did that happen organically? Were you doing outreach? How did those come about? Uh, it's a great question. And some of it's organic. A lot of it is is trying to push. And so you mentioned kind of the, the, the books. The first book was 501 Ways, and that came about because for two, it was it was kind of a, I, I love finding when there's a double benefit to things, of which humor is, right? It not only helps you to enjoy your work more, but you become more effective. A book was like, one, people were asking me, okay, humor is, I, I'm sold on the idea. How do I get started? So I was like, what if I just write a list of 500 ways and then you can pick whichever one you want, right? Create a reference guide. So that was one benefit. And then the other benefit was like, people are like, if you write a book, it makes it easier to get sold into a company because they can say, hey, they literally wrote the book on this thing. (laughs) doesn't matter if it's a self-published book, doesn't matter in some ways if it sold 12 copies or anything, right? It's like, can I, it's it's the best business card that you'll ever have. Aside from now, as a speaker, a good video is probably better than a book, but then then a book comes next. And so part of it was, okay, how do I strategically write this book? Uh, that was the first time completely self-published. And then it was the second time United States of Laughter came out. I had lived for 18 months as a nomad because I was traveling and speaking. This was, I, I had left PNG and was traveling a lot. And I was like, do I actually need to pay rent in New York City if I'm not going to live there half of the time? Mm-hmm. And so I ended up going to all 50 states in a year. And I was like, oh, I can turn that into a project that can now be a book where I talk about, you know, a story from each state. So that's where the United States of Laughter came from. And when that came out, I was like, I feel like this is something that people would find, like local news channels would find interesting. So then I worked with a PR person. I worked with a friend of mine to kind of say, hey, when I'm traveling to a place, can you reach out and share kind of a little bit about my background and who I am? And can you do that? Some of the Forbes one was like, you know, some of them were organic. People saw me at a conference and they happened to write about the conference. Some of them were I saw someone wrote about humor. So then I reached out to them directly. And I was like, hey, I saw this great article that you had on humor. Here's like, here's another angle that you could approach. I'd be happy to write some of the content for you if you think it's a right fit. And then it's like, oh, I just happen to be the expert that they quote in it. So it's a balance of mm-hmm. organic and um, and kind of going proactive. But I think that's how it always works. If you like, if you're not getting this stuff organically, if it's not coming in by its own on just straight inbound, then do some things to make sure that you're, you're creating, like don't sit around waiting for it to happen to be like, all right, how do I create quote unquote my own luck? Or how do I create some of my own opportunities in these places? I love that. That's great. And you settled after traveling around in Panama City, Panama. What's the deal yeah. there? Uh, that is, uh, the deal there is um, my wife. So my wife works for the UN and um, she got an opportunity to do a role uh, here for the regional um, area. Um, so she's a regional advisor for Latin America and the Caribbean for her kind of function in the UN. And that's the benefit of having built this business in this way is that it's like, oh, as long as I can hop on a flight, then I can get to wherever it is that I need to go. And while things are virtual, hey, we're doing, you know, I was able to build out a bigger virtual studio here in Panama than I have in New York City. And so we can kind of uh, to set that up. And and that I mean, what's interesting to me, I don't know, maybe it's not interesting. So we don't have to talk about it if you don't want to, but that <laughs> dating even became a project, right? Like I'm an engineer. I met my wife in 2018 when I went on 99 first dates. Uh, my wife was number 72. 72, uh, whoa. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you like, hold that over her every single day, right? Well, she, so to be fair, she dated in that year, she dated, she had gotten out of a really long relationship and she only dated three people. So she clearly won dating because she only had to go on three dates and then found me and picked me. I went yeah. on 99, 99 and was yeah. like, no, this is, this is the, the thing. But that Can was another imagine? project set. That was like a whole, like, this is a goal. This is a thing that I want to go after. And I think that is, if I have one kind of advantage skill set in terms of behavior, that's been very good. It's that type A, it's that proactive thing of like, 
yes, I would love for the romantic, you know, Hollywood version of a story to come along of I met someone just because we bumped into each other and I helped her pick up her coffee or whatever. But it's like, I'm also too impatient to sit around and wait for that to happen. So can I engineer this stuff? And now we have a beautiful, different love story mm-hmm. um, than, you know, the, the fairy tale one, but also one that's still equally romantic, I think. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very, I, I see what you mean about type A. That's not how I am at all. I hate spreadsheets. I hate Excel with a passion. <laughs> I'm the exact opposite. It's like, come up with 4 million things, 4 million humorous angles. Sure, no problem. Write it down. Uh, now we got a major <laughs> issue on our hands. Like, I'm the kind of person, if I had a spreadsheet, you know, I just would like color it. And then before you know it, it'll become like a flower drawing, like a right. hippie drawing. <laughs> it's like, what was this thing supposed to be for? I don't think well, that way. Pro- I don't all. know, but it is pretty. It, it is, is pretty. It's beautiful. Now it's beautiful, but... um. So, so Panama, what's, what was the weather like today in Panama? Uh, it's the same as it is almost every, well, yeah. for nine months out of the year, it uh, started wonderfully with sunshine. Then it was about 90 degrees by 9 a.m. And then it rained uh, like a monsoon feeling like rain, like what we, like in New York or L.A. would feel like a flood is happening. Uh, rain for about an hour. And then now it is back to sunny, slightly gray again. But okay. It's every single, it's almost every single day like that. And so it's wonderful. So how do you, how could you possibly go back to New York after living there? <laughs> well, the, like we, we have, we've definitely gotten used to the additional space because we were living in the East Village before and it's yeah. like, oh yeah, we have way more room down here. But it's interesting. I am, I, and I, I'm an optimistic person. I've become more optimistic because of improv. And so I always think of like, I'm always thinking of like in a yes and mentality. I'm always thinking of like the, you know, kind of the positive. So here in Panama, the great positives are that um, it is, you know, sunny all the time. We've got way more room. I've got a built-in studio, all that kind of stuff. The negative is that, you know, I can't eat Grater's ice cream. We don't like Amazon. So buying stuff is a little bit more of a pain. And flights, I have a lot more connections than I ever did having in in New York when I'm flying to a place like, you know, it's almost always now through Houston or Atlanta or New York or other places. Versus New York, it's like, okay, yeah, I don't have the rats. I don't have the subway smell. I don't have the smell of trash in the summer. But I also don't have the ease of I could go and do stand-up multiple times in a night if I wanted to, if I'm working on new material and needed to go and do that, I can't get, you know, dollar pizza or other, you know, delicious <laughs> really food. That dollar pizza. That's the key. Well, pros and cons of like, both. I love the dollar right. pizzas. New York is so great. Uh, that's no, I completely, I completely get it. That's, that's excellent. So if you want, if, if you're somebody like me who wants to get gigs as a mm-hmm. public speaker, you want to approach that world. You don't know how, what advice would you have, having done it your way, to break into the public speaking circuit? Yeah. The thing that I did that was helpful, and I didn't know this was going to help. So the spreadsheet actually was helpful. So I apologize. A spreadsheet might help. <laughs> Damn it. Um, that you color in or That's otherwise. That's the key. Um, you don't need it. Like, but to, as I mentioned, proactively find places to speak. Right. Like I knew from stand up, the only way that I got even decent at stand up was going to a bunch of open mics was to go out and try it. And so I assumed that the same was true for speaking. I was like, I need to get speaking engagements in order for me to get better as a speaker. And so I went on meetup.com. This is obviously pre pandemic, but I went on meetup.com, New York City. I looked for any group that had regular meetings, either weekly or monthly meetings, any group that got more than 15 to 20 people that would show up on average. And I reached out and was like, hey, can I come to your group and speak about humor and blank? Whatever the subject of their meetup was. So I was like, can I talk about humor and agile project management? Can I talk about humor and speed dating? Can I talk about humor and, you know, whatever it is. Bunch of people ignored me. A bunch of people kind of said no. um, And a handful of people said yes. Like, oh, that sounds interesting. And so then that what I would do And it took me a few times to realize that I would go and speak and then I'd have a friend or something come and take a picture of me speaking. So it's like, oh, this looks legit. And no one has to know that I didn't get paid for that speaking event. No one has to know that I was the one to reach out. All they see is me in front of a crowd kind of speaking to people. And then if you get better at that. So I did that. That led to a free another free speaking event in Westchester, um, up in Westchester and New York. 
And that was for a networking group. And then I did that one. And some of them came up to me afterwards because I have a project management background. They're like, hey, have you ever spoken for PMI, Project Management Institute? Um, we have a, a PMI Westchester. And we only pay our speakers like $500. I'm sorry, it's a small stipend, but wondering if you'd come and speak. And of course, I'm like, in the back, I'm like, $500 to speak? Like, that, that's amazing. Of course, I haven't made any money from this, like, except for like, $8 at a stand-up show once and they gave me lunch with it or whatever, like <laughs> 500. That's amazing. Yes. Okay. I think I can make it work for 500. So I do that. And that went well enough that another PMI chapter reached out and they saw it. And then, so like it was by doing these kind of unpaid or low fee or whatever types of events, it built my skill up, gave me collateral to kind of make it look like I had actually done some of these events. And got me in front of people that then said, oh, you should speak here, you should speak here, you should speak here. So I think if I were to speak, like I would do, because it worked for me, obviously it's a survivor bias, but sure. you know, it worked for me and a lot of other speakers that I know, I think find ways to speak, whether that is volunteering at the Rotary Club or volunteering to groups on Meetup or whatever, use that to start to at least make sure that you have a really good speech. And then you can also leverage your network to go out and do it. The thing that I didn't do this, but... Apparently, uh, some other speakers have had great success with doing is another thing that you can do is you can um, reach out to different groups, like reach out to a specific group that you know that you can serve well, maybe because you have a background there, a history there, you know that industry or something like that. And so for me, like I could reach out to project managers and be like, hey, I'm putting together this resource for how project managers can use humor. I was wondering if I could interview you for 15 minutes to understand what are some of the biggest challenges you're facing? What are the ways that you've seen humor work in the workplace? So you're reaching out to a person, not, hey, hire me, but more of, hey, I'm putting together this program. You do that 10, 15 people, put together a nice resource from what all these people said, and then share that back with all the people that you reach out to say, hey, I got this great feedback. Here's the article, or here's a handout, or here's whatever piece of content um, that thought you might enjoy. And by the way, Seem, people seem to really resonate with this. I've decided to do a workshop version of this. And because you were so willing to help me out, I'm happy to come in and talk to your organization for free or for half price or for whatever. And so now you've like, you've done your research to know that it is going to be valuable to people. And you've started to make connections that didn't start immediately with hire me. Right. That's brilliant. That's a brilliant plan. I love it. That's so good. Um, I, don't, I do want to be respectful of your time. I know we're winding down here with the hour. Um, so I, normally I ask what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received, but I think you've given so many good practical tips already. So how about this? What's your favorite joke of all time? Favorite joke of all time. Can it be my own joke? It can be any joke. Can it be my own joke? Uh, I will say the joke, um, the best joke that I've ever written, I know it's the best joke just because it's been stolen the most. Um, but the best joke I ever wrote, and it's in my first, because people are like, I've seen that joke before, you didn't write it. It's like, well, if you go back and look at it, like it first came from me and then you've seen it elsewhere. Uh, but the joke is uh, uh, talking to my boss and he asked, how good are you at PowerPoint? I said, I excel at it. <laughs> he was like, was that a Microsoft Office pun? I was like, word. Oh my God. Um, that's that, it. That's that what breaks the back. internet. I love it. That's what breaks the internet. The internet is that's... so random. What people pick up and what they don't, isn't it? It's it's crazy. And what's crazy to me about that is that so I posted that to Reddit once. It made the front page, and then people removed my name from it and instead added a stock image of an old dude sitting at a computer. And like that's the version that blows up. That's the version that's shared by all the meme accounts and all these other places. It's like. Why the old, why does the old guy have to be what does the what does the stock image of the old guy help to to do? But I don't know. That is that I think is a joke. But to answer your other question, best piece of advice that I ever received, I think is different than the most impactful advice that I've received. And that most impactful is that better to beg for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission. If you listen to the through line, kind of what I've been talking about, is me reaching out, me self-publishing a book, me like it wasn't waiting around for someone to say, here's this opportunity. It was like, how can I go and do this, right? How can I go and try and, and, and do that? So I think for people is, yeah, stop waiting for permission, go out and, and try to do it yourself um, and, um, and see what happens. That's so good. You know, there's, there's a famous part. I do have one, one tiny last thing. So Jordan Belfort, mm -hmm. Wolf of Wall Street, love him or hate mm -hmm. him. He's a great con man. He showed up, to, I think, dental school. He went somewhere and 
it was day one of dental school and the professor says to him, if anybody's here, if you're here to make money, walk out right now because this isn't what we do here. And he walked out. <laughs> he did. It's not a joke. He literally did. And he's like, fuck that. I'm going to go find money. Yeah. What made you decide I want to be a speaker? I mean, you're IN, you're introverted. So that's not where you would say that a public speaker would come from. How did you think this is what's right? Was it I can make a lot of money doing this or I just love speaking? It just seems so interesting. It, it was um, impact plus narcissism. Yes. I think was the <laughs> that's like. A, that's going to be my new Instagram Right. profile exactly. impact was narcissism done because you have to because to do stand up or to be a speaker you have to be a slightly narcissistic and a friend of mine in new york city shared it this way uh very very funny he's like stand up is so interesting because you have to be someone who thinks to yourself like you know who's funny me you know who has good thoughts me you know who should hear all of my other thoughts everyone else you like other people. So you have to like have a, at least enough of like an inflated ego to say, no, my voice, especially this voice, this nasally voice is worth other people listening to. So slight narcissism, but then impact. As I mentioned, I was pushed into this type of thing and it had such a transformational experience on my life. Even if I had stayed at PNG, improv and stand up would have been a positive transformation in my life. And so it's like, okay, how can I go and do that? And this I have just found is one one of many ways, but maybe one of my favorite ways to, to get it to get it out there to other people. Same of like doing a podcast. It's like you can have this kind of conversation or writing a book or doing online videos or whatever. It's a way to get that message out there a little bit more and, and hopefully leave people with a little bit of a smile, leave people with a little bit of a, a sense of um, aspiration or a thing where I want people to look at me and be like, wait, if, if, that, if that dude can learn to be funny, anyone can learn to be funny. Like, yes, that, that should be your lesson, your takeaway from, from this. And if I can inspire people either because this is great or because they're like, I could do better, that's, that's a win for me. Well, that's a wonderful words to part with. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you sitting down with me. We've reached the end. So with that, the uh, podcast is officially over. Support him by his various books, Humor That Works, The United States of Laughter, 501 Ways to Use Humor. And visit the website, andrewtarvin.com. Is that right? Andrewtarvin.com. Or uh, probably most helpful, good starting point is humorthatworks.com. So if you are interested in that idea of humor or kind of what, or even just from a branding perspective to see how has this been positioned or whatever, if you're interested on kind of the, how the sausage is made side of things. And yeah, check out humorthatworks.com. We've got a bunch of free resources there for people. And if you want to connect, I'm always happy to connect on social media. Or if you were like, I love the puns. That was the best part. Then just follow me on social media because that's most when I post. Uh, so you can follow me at Drew Tarvin, D-R-E-W-T-A-R-V as in Victor I-N on social media. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Drew. And with that, the official podcast is done. Well, there you have it, folks. Clearly, that was a very interesting episode for me personally. If you've listened to any of these episodes, you'll know that finding that balance between being serious and being funny is something that is at the heart of a lot of the work that I do, and I can't say that I've exactly figured it out, but I've definitely admired the way that he seems to have, and it gives me hope that we can bring humor into a corporate environment or that we can still do things that are profitable while bringing humor into it. So I very much enjoyed listening to his story, brought a lot of satisfaction to me personally, so I hope it did the same for you. Again, just quick thing, if you enjoy this show, all I ask is that you subscribe on your podcast platform of choice, rate it five stars, write a nice review, leave a nice comment anywhere you find it. And of course, these things grow by you sharing them with somebody who needs to hear it. Just drop the podcast to a friend, to a family member, to anybody at all. Help me grow the show and I'll really appreciate it. Again, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your time and I'll see you next week on the Beat the Often Path podcast.